We're going to read Luke chapter 18 from verses 31 to 43. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him. They'll flog him and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they didn't know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Father, by your spirit, would you teach us now? Would you help us to see who you are and what you've done? Amen. So we live in a world of searching, don't we? And of course, where do people go for their searches? Google. So did you know there are 40,000 searches on Google per second, which is 3.5 billion searches every day, which makes 1.2 trillion searches every year on Google. Do you know what the most searched for term in the UK on Google was? Scylla Black, <laughs> apparently. And do you know what the top questions in 2015 in the UK were, according to Google? Number five, the fifth most popular question asked was how to register to vote. Number four was how to use the new Snapchat update. If you don't know what that means, ask someone younger than you. Number three was how to, how to lose weight quickly. Number two was how to get rid of brain freeze, interestingly. And number one, there's a theme here, the most popular question in 2015 was how to lose belly fat. There you go. We search a lot, if we can have the uh, first slide up, please. We search a lot, don't we? We search for a better bargain. We search for a better insurance policy. We search for new jobs. We search for nicer houses. We search for newer cars. We search for prettier tops. We search for more reliable uh, companies to invest in. We search a lot. But it's not just the sort of trivial things where we're searching in the supermarket. We search for important things all the time, for hope, for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for a partner, for that significance in our lives. We search. And so today, we begin a series called The Search, in which we're going to look at what it is we search for and Jesus' perspective on it. And if you like, there's a question that Jesus asks in that reading we just had. 
which he asks for us today. And it was there in verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? If Jesus asks you that question this morning, what is your answer? What would you like me to do for you? How would you answer it? What are you searching for? What do you long for? What do you want me to do for you? Let's just pause for 10 seconds. In your own mind, what is it if he asked you that question this morning? What is your answer? What are you searching for? Because in this passage we've just read, there are three different perspectives on the things that people search for. Three aspects of searching that, if we're honest, we find in ourselves as well. And the first is this. There are three different groups of people, three different characters in this story, if you like. And the first is this. There are a group who are searching for a God made in their own image. You see, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, the twelve, had been following him around, seeing him do amazing things. They'd been searching for a Messiah And they'd started following Jesus because they thought he was the real deal. He was the one. He ticked their box, their checklists of what it meant to be a Messiah. And yet we have these startling words as Jesus begins to tell them what a Messiah looks like. And we read it in verse 31 to 34 where he talks about the Messiah will be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. And then he'll rise again. And even though he's told them this before in Luke's gospel, it simply doesn't compute. Three times in verse 34, the disciples didn't understand any of it. Its meaning was hidden from them and they didn't know what he was talking about. Even though Jesus is very clear, they didn't get it. Why? Because they presumed they knew what kind of a Messiah he was. They presumed they knew how God should act. They knew what they needed, they thought, and so therefore Jesus was going to deliver that. They were searching for the kind of God they thought they needed, not the real one. Their search was for a God that fitted into their agenda, ticked their boxes, delivered their plans if you like, a vending machine God, delivers what I want when I want. But we suddenly realize that Jesus is way bigger than that, way different from that. As the old quote goes, God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. They were searching for a God in their own image, not the real one. And there's a great story by a Greek Orthodox writer named Nikos Kazantzakis. Shared a conversation that he had with an old, old monk. Brilliant conversation. As he was sat with this kind of saintly old man one day, he said to him, Do you still wrestle with the devil, Father Makarios? And the old monk reflects for a while and then replies, Not any longer, my child. I've grown old now and he has grown old with me. He doesn't have the strength anymore. I now wrestle with God. With God, exclaims the writer. And you hope to win this wrestle? And this monk says, no, I hope to lose my child. I hope to lose. 
You see, the real God is very different from our perspective on God. So can I ask you, when was the last time you read something in the pages of Scripture or you thought something that God was asking you to do or something about God that caught you off guard that you didn't like? Because there's a warning here, I think. If God always agrees with us, Take care, because maybe, just maybe, we're not worshipping the real God. We're worshipping the God made in our own image. So for some of us, we're beginning this journey of, of investigating Jesus. Or maybe we say, yes, we follow Jesus, but we're at the very beginning of that. Can I encourage you, get to grips with who the real Jesus is, not your perspective on him. Some of us have an idea of Jesus. And so when we hear our friends who are Christians, they may have invited along to church. We think we know who this Jesus is. Please don't rest on what you know about him. Get stuck into the pages of the Bible and investigate who he really is. But for those of us who do follow Jesus and maybe have been walking with him for a number of years... There's a warning, isn't there, of presuming we know, presuming we understand. I love this cartoon that's been doing the rounds on Twitter recently. It's a brilliant cartoon of a kind of theological college where they're looking at churches and Christian movements throughout history. And you've got all these different groups. And then the lecturer is brilliantly saying, and so this is where we came along and finally got the Bible right. And somebody wonderfully in the crowd says, Jesus, so lucky to have us, isn't he? Presuming that we've got it all right, we know everything brilliant, aren't we great? We understand exactly what God will do and how he will work. God doesn't fit into their agenda. They were seeking a warrior, they got a baby. They were seeking a victor and they got a dead man. They were seeking a God that would destroy their Roman enemy and they got to destroy their real enemy, death itself. A good friend of mine was a few years ago when he'd just become a Christian was at a conference. And at this conference was a very, very well-known Christian leader doing a talk. Probably one of the most influential Christian leaders in the 20th century. And this friend who was like a baby Christian went up to this guy afterwards and went up to him and said, can I disagree with you about something? Brave move for someone so influential all around the world. And do you know what happened? This guy... A big beaming smile came on his face and he said, thank you. Thank you for disagreeing with me. And my friend was taken aback. And the guy went on, it's because nobody ever disagrees with me. Because I write all these books, I say all these things, everyone presumes I know everything. Thank you for questioning me. So don't settle on what you think you know. Can I encourage you? Authentic Christianity will always result in a change of your thinking. It always will. And if God is never challenging what you think, never challenging what you do in your life, then maybe you're not worshipping the real God. So take care. Worshipping a God in your own image. So that's the first thing. They were searching for what they wanted rather than the real God, the real Messiah. But there's a second search in this passage. There's a search not for this God made in their own image, but there's a search for an experience that satisfies them. 
Because you've got the disciples, but you've got this other group in this story. Did you see them? As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. There's this crowd following Jesus. And this man who's blind asked to speak to Jesus and get, you know, go and speak to him. And verse 39, those who led the way rebuked him. They rebuked him. And then what happens at the end? This man receives his sight. And we get this beautiful verse. He received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. There's this crowd following the action, going wherever Jesus goes. What's he going to do next? And he does this amazing miracle. Brilliant. Fantastic. Praise God. They clearly know some stuff about Jesus. And when the party's good, they get all excited. And yet, if you know your Bible, just a few pages on in the Bible, Luke chapter 23, let me read it to you. Some humbling words for all of us who are following Jesus. Luke 23, verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And in verse 35 of chapter 23, the people stood there watching and the rulers sneered as he was nailed to the cross. One moment, praise God, look, wow, yes, fantastic. The next moment, crucify or simply just standing at a distance, as it were, with their arms crossed, just seeing what happens next. Is he going to do anything about this? Watching at a distance. In other words, this crowd of people are portrayed as fickle. They're seeking an experience, the buzz, the party, the energy. They're not seeking Christ. And I, that phrase really struck me. They stood and watched. And it might be that some of us here, if we're honest, adopt that same sort of posture. We've got our arms folded a little bit, just watching what will happen. What's he going to do next? And can I say, if you're my sort of generation, this is a big one for us, I think. We seek an experience. And so we seek a relationship that meets my needs. And when it begins not to, well, I look elsewhere. We seek a job that meets my needs. And when it doesn't deliver and there's the hope of a better one, well, I skip next elsewhere. We seek a place to live that meets my needs. And when this city seems a bit boring, we move elsewhere. We seek a house. We seek a church, we seek friends, we seek anything that ticks the boxes on my list and quickly move on when there's a promise and a lure of something different over here. The grass is greener over there and when we get there we realise that, that green is full of thistles as well. We are a discontent generation, always striving for another experience, a deeper experience, a more profound experience and it's the experience we seek not the saviour. And in church terms, it can be the same here, can't it? And we end up following our experience and our desire for it, not Christ himself. 
And can I affirm you then if you're of an older generation? I'll let you choose whether that's you or not. My generation looks at your generation. And there is stuff in your generation that we deeply, deeply admire. We see a generation of people who have weathered storms and stuck with each other. And we ache because we don't have that in our generation. We see a generation who, would, with deep respect, have kept on putting one foot in front of the other and weathered storms, even at the self of self-sacrifice, and we ache because my generation is taught to bail. Thank you for modeling a different way. That long obedience in the same direction that my generation deeply struggles with. This group, they sought the experience Folded arms, just wanting to see what happens next as to whether I jump in or I go the other way. It's a deep warning, isn't it? Searching for my experience, not the Savior. So there's a group who make Jesus in their own image. There's a group who's just in it for the bars and the party and the celebration. When there's a better promise over here, I'll go over there. But then, of course, there's this third search in this chapter. And this is the search for a genuine rescuer that could simply transform. I love this blind man. Because of his honesty, his humility, that same stuff we were talking about, the prayer gathering on Friday night. He knows his need. He's desperate. And he simply finds the rescuer. And the irony, of course, is this. You've got these disciples who think they see and yet don't. You've got this crowd who want to see, but it's seeing on their own terms. And then you've got this man who knows he cannot see. And yet by the end, because of faith in Christ, does see way more than the others. And do you see verse 38? What does he call out? He calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's tried to shut up by the crowd. Shut up! And so he calls out even louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. He knows his need and he knows he needs hope. And he knows that Jesus is the only one that can fix that need. My generation try and do all we can to fix our own needs. Uh, did you see the research that was brought out recently? Stunning research in the US about lottery winners. Did you read that? It was a, a report done about previous winners of the lottery in America. And did you know, seven years after winning the lottery, 70% of those winners are bankrupt. 70% after winning the lottery. Seven years afterwards. That great need, prom that great allure of this promise, that will sort my life out. We can't fix our own issues. We dream of solutions, and yet this man knows the only place to go for that solution. Son of David, have mercy on me. And he won't let anyone get in his way. They tell him to shut up, so he shouts even louder. And that's what we were doing on Friday night. Defiantly saying, God, have mercy, please. Please. There's a humility here of utmost dependence on his knees. Jesus, have mercy on me. And there's a huge encouragement for those of us in this room right now. 
right now who are battling with things and we have prayed long and hard with desperate tears. This man is a model for us, not letting anything get in the way to keep on pouring out our hearts as defiantly as we can. And it reminded me of a story of when I was growing up. In the church I was part of when I was as young, uh, there was this guy who, who became a follower of Jesus quite dramatically. It's a great, uh, great story. But one evening, he came along to a prayer meeting and he brought a friend along. Now, if you've been around church, you'll know that prayer meetings are not necessarily the place that you'd bring somebody who isn't a follower of Jesus. Prayer meetings like Friday night, they're kind of for the family. They're for the sort of, you know, we talk the same language, we're all on board, and it's not kind of the best sort of place for kind of visitors. And I was in this group with this guy who'd brought his mate along. And his mate was clearly desperately uncomfortable in this gathering. Because there we were, sat praying, you know, shampoo position, praying and all this sort of stuff. And this guy was shuffling and felt a bit awkward, didn't know what to say. Should he say anything? Should he just sit there, eyes closed, eyes open? What's this Bible? Didn't know. Whatever. And yet, chatting to him afterwards, he had seen the difference Jesus had made in my friend's life. And he knew he needed hope. And so he simply came defiantly, uncomfortably to a place where there might be hope. Amazing. He wouldn't let anyone, any even inappropriate meeting as it were, get in the way of finding hope. He knew he just needed mercy. And so can I encourage you here this morning, if you are one of those desperate prayers... And around you, there may be people in your family or in your sphere who are just kind of encouraging you, maybe even to abandon your faith because that doesn't seem to work. Or to keep on like this man, just calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I'm not going to give up. Please, Lord, please have mercy on me. A defiant, humble, pleading with your Savior. Come, beg. And the beautiful encouragement, of course, is what? Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Should we stand together? Please stand. What we're going to do is... uh, Earlier we were thinking about if Jesus asked you that question, what do you want me to do for you? How you would answer. And what we're simply going to do is I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. And if you're comfortable doing this, to simply hold out your hands. You don't have to, but if it's something that you'd find useful. And then what we're going to do is simply, as it were, offer those things to God. And then we're going to say out loud together the words that that blind man in the story said. Simply saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay? That's what we're going to do. And then the band are going to lead us as we respond together. But let's be still for a moment and bring to mind again that question, what is it you want me to do for you? And then we'll say those words together. Let's be still. So with hands uh, held open, 
We're going to say together those words, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we're going to say them twice. So we say together, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you're the God in the business of of changing lives and transforming. You are a true rescuer. May we not make you in our image. May we not seek just an experience, but may we know our need, our desperate need for mercy. Lord, we give you ourselves. We give you these situations. We give you our very lives, Lord. Please. Have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.